If by confusion you mean idiot people commenting on the website about stupid things. It's Friday, July the 7th, 2017, and this is the Dutch News Podcast. I'm Gordon Derrick, Dutch News contributor, and for the next six weeks, hostage in my own home. And with me today is my fellow Dutch News contributor and debutante happy camper, Molly Quell. The third regular member of our panel, cab driving political anorak, Paul Peters, isn't here today because he's hanging out in exam halls. Yeah, his excuse was that he had some sort of exam this morning. Yeah, these the students. As if that's more important than being here with us. Yeah, I can't pull the wool over our eyes. Yeah, he'll be scrolling memes. Yeah, of course he is. I'm sure he's posting on Twitter every 20 seconds yeah, if you check. posting right now. In our top story, anybody charged with shooting down Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 two years ago will be put on trial in the Netherlands. That was a decision by the joint investigation team from the five countries involved in the crash this week to bring the case under Dutch law rather than setting up a Lockerbie-style special court. Russia had previously vetoed a move to hear the case before a United Nations tribunal. Russian-backed separatists in Ukraine are the chief suspects of the attack, though Moscow has firmly denied any involvement and sought to undermine the Episcopal investigation by the Dutch Safety Board. 196 of the 298 people who died on board the aircraft were Dutch nationals. So are there any suspects yet? Well, there's no named suspects yet, but the joint investigation team says they have got people in the frame. Uh, it hasn't charged anybody so far, and the whole question is whether they will actually get around to put anyone on trial because of the really fawning political kind of uh, delicate political situation around the whole case. And if they're Russian nationals, then uh, the Russian government has already said that they won't be extradited. So it's against Russian law to extradite Russian citizens, uh, but they'll put them on trial at, at home instead. The Netherlands got arranged with Ukraine to have a video link to the court for any, any Ukrainian suspects, but they haven't been able to do any kind of deal like that with Russia. And are the families of the victims uh, happy with this with this decision? Yeah, it was obviously a very, very slow process for the families and um, very, very difficult for them. I think they're pleased on the one hand that they have now moved a small step towards prosecution, or at least they've got something set up, they get as far as charging anybody. But they're concerned, you know, it's taken an awful long time, it's very difficult, political complications are so um, yeah, hard to untangle that uh, there's a real question marks over whether anyone will stand trial for shooting down the plane. Gerrit Gey, a former customs officer at the Rotterdam Harbor, has been sentenced to 14 years in jail for his role in a cocaine smuggling ring. He worked at the harbor pre-screening facility where he allowed containers carrying the drugs to pass through without being inspected. For his role in the operation, he was paid 7.5% of the worth of the drugs. He was arrested in April 2015 after the police intercepted 400 kilos of cocaine. So that's quite a result for the um, prosecution service, obviously. Were, were they happy with the ruling? Somewhat. They asked for 16 years because, as they claimed, he was the, quote, tip of the iceberg. There were three other suspects in the case and they were sentenced between three and ten years. Yeah, and how much uh, did he earn from his nefarious activities? Well, it's not exactly clear. He did have a stash of one million euros in cash at his house when he was arrested. He's known to have gotten at least uh, three and a half million euros, but it was probably more since he uh, burned through quite a bit uh, spending it on business class flights to Curacao and uh, private schooling for his daughter. Yeah, and uh, I've written the case as well that his wife was quite seriously ill and uh, at one point he was let out of uh, prison while he was on demand to care for her but then he started um, phoning up all his um, drug contacts again so um, after she died he went back in prison yeah it was a little uh, it was a little controversial apparently because yeah like you said she was he was out he was allowed out on romance because his wife was terminally ill while he was out he was apparently making underworld contacts but after she passed away they rearrested him and mm. so it was he, his lawyer was claiming that this was sort of cruel and inhumane to, to throw him back in jail upon the death of his wife <laughs> 
Bitterbollen, one of those Dutch delicacies that divide opinion, but the debate really heated up in Utrecht this week when the Partij van de Dieren, the Animal Rights Party, proposed a rule at the town hall that would have forced it to serve equal quantities of vegetarian and vegan snacks alongside the meat-filled breaded bulls. D66 and Kroon Links unexpectedly backed the motion, but the Fefe Day opposed it, saying the choice should be up to the individual. Uh, how does the Fefe Day propose that the choice is left up to the individual if the individual is not given a choice of consuming a vegetarian snack? Well, I suppose they can order out themselves. Or okay, just bring their own takeaway. Yeah, bring your own vegan takeaway. Yeah, they could just bring their own uh, peanut butter sandwich, I suppose. So were there any uh, prominent campaigners to jump on the uh, bitter bala row? Well, you wouldn't believe it, but uh, there was a protest outside the city hall, a photo call, and uh, someone uh, unraveled a banner saying uh, we don't want vegan snacks. Do you have a favorite fried snack to eat at uh, at Borrell's and so? I've got like shrimp croquettes. Oh, yeah. shrimp croquettes. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. There's a little fish van down in my street that serves absolutely delicious um, yeah. Yeah, the shrimp or cornfield croquettes. Nice. I like the little uh, the little cheese stick ones. Those are my favorite. Yeah, and you've got to have them with uh, uh, with, with mustard smeared on them. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, with a side order of chips with mayonnaise. Yeah, yeah, of course, anyway, of so course. Yeah. Actually, I, I would argue that the cost souffle is the best uh, hangover food that I've ever encountered <laughs> anywhere in my, uh, in my life. The, the cast souffle is one of those things like kebabs that you should only eat when you're very drunk or hungover. Hungover, that's yeah. exactly right. Who needs diesel when you can run a bus on poison? That's what researchers at TU Eindhoven asked themselves at some point in the recent past and published the answer to that question this week. Max Ertz, head of the development team, said formic acid was a cost-effective way to create hydrogen as fuel. According to the researchers, formic acid, which is found in the poison in wasps and nettles, is easier to store than pure hydrogen and easy to synthesize. The team expects buses to be running on the fuel within five years and touts the easy retrofitting of petrol stations as another plus, since apparently you can store formic acid fuel in existing fuel tanks. So Molly, are you looking forward to your first ride on a poison-powered bus? I am not, because I am deathly allergic to wasps and bee stings, and so I will be avoiding these buses at all costs. You should be okay as long as you don't stick your hand in the fuel tank, right? I, Again. I, I'm un- yeah, I know. But it's uh, kind of a cost-efficient thing because you can basically all the infrastructure is there, right? All you need to do is just fill up the pumps with uh, formic acid instead of, uh, yeah, instead of petrol. Instead of petrol or diesel, whereas um, actually storing pure hydrogen is a lot more complicated. Yeah, that's right. And apparently, according to them, it's quite easy to synthesize this stuff. So it's not yeah, that they have to, to the go petrol. around doing a, a mass uh, extermination of bees and ants, which, frankly, if they wanted to, I wouldn't have a problem with. <laughs> Sport now, and Dutch hopes are riding high in the Tour de France, which got underway at the weekend in the German city of Dusseldorf before winding through the Belgian countryside into France. Tom Dumoulin's win in the Giro d'Italia ended a 37-year wait for a major tour win. Dumoulin isn't competing in France, but Barker Mollema, Laurens Tendam and Robert Geysink lead a 15-strong Dutch contingent. Britain's Chris Froome leads the race after six stages, but the real mountain action starts on Saturday. Gordon, I feel like my Facebook feed has been filled with cycling. The Tour de France is not the only race going on at the moment, right? Uh, no, there is another cycling race going on just now, and uh, there's a lot of Dutch interest in it as well. It's the women's uh, version of the Giro d'Italia. Anna van den Brechen is leading it. It's called the Giro Rosa. She's leading by more than a minute, and one of our main rivals is Annemiek van Floten in third, just um, a minute and a half behind. 10 stage race and it uh, finishes on Sunday so uh, quite possibly we'll see another Dutch tour winner in Italy this year. A resident of Amsterdam decided to go on a walkabout this week, causing a bit of an uproar. The red-ruffed lemur, who normally lives at the artist zoo, escaped from his enclosure and wandered as far away as the Vibautstraat in the city centre before being apprehended by a zoo employee in an underground parking facility. 
Zoo employee Dennis Von Hahn got a call at 6 o'clock on Monday morning reporting the animal had been spotted in a parking garage at the Waterloo Plain. He managed to catch the animal and return it to the zoo. The lemur is unharmed and the zoo is checking the enclosure for escape routes. So what did he get up to on his uh, jaunt to the V-Bucks drive? Are there any details? Well, the artist zoo did not uh, release any of those details, but we can presume that he bought a fuzzy hat with Amsterdam written across the front of it and visited a coffee shop. Yeah, and then probably went on a canal cruise and had his picture taken at the end. Of course. Yeah. Do you drive or ride a bike? Are you in the train or on the train? If you're producing text in English but aren't sure of just the right wording, M Squared can help you. M Squared is a digital publications company that can help you with all of your writing, editing and translation needs. They have a combined 20 years experience crafting the perfect document from editing books to writing website copy. If you need help with your website text, brochure, thesis, press release and more, contact them at info at msqrd.com. If you are interested in reaching an international audience with your product or service, you can email to podcast at dutchnews.nl for our competitive advertising rates. A study this week suggested that job seekers were more likely to be accepted if they had a criminal record for violence than if they had a minority ethnic background. Researchers sent out 520 applications to construction and logistics firms, all from fictional 20-year-old men born in the Netherlands with various backgrounds and histories. Some disclosed convictions for violence, theft or sexual offences, while others had clean records, and the applications were sent out under two fictitious names, one of which was obviously Dutch, while the other indicated an Arabic background. The ethnic Dutch applicant was around three and a half times more likely to be accepted for interview than his minority counterpart, with the same history. But moreover, the Dutch CVs which cited a history of violence stood a better chance than the minority candidates with no criminal past. It's the latest in a series of studies that have highlighted the difficulties people from minority ethnic communities face in the labour market. So what can be done to create a level playing field? So Molly, perhaps we should start by just actually pinpointing what this study did, because there's been a bit of confusion, I think. So this was a, a, a joint study between uh, two universities in the Netherlands and a university in Belgium. The Belgian researcher, Dean Barrett, who is at Ghent, is actually quite, I think, famous in the field for, for his work on uh, on discrimination and employment. Um, I was reading some of his stuff on Twitter. Yeah, he's done similar studies in Flanders. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's, he's done a bunch of studies on yeah. this sorts of thing. And essentially, like you said, they sent out a bunch of applications to job postings that were posted online. They were looking for a number of different things. Uh, they used candidates with four fictitious uh, offenses, so a, a violent offense, a sexual offense, a, a property-related offense, and then some sort of minor crime. And they, yeah, had a, had a couple of different sort of other parameters that they were sort of looking for. And the thing that kind of stood out the most, of course, was this indication that if you are a person with a, a sort of ethnically-sounding Dutch name, that you are more likely to get called for an interview than even if you have a, a criminal history than an, a person with a clean history with a minority quote-unquote sounding name. And there's one detail I suppose we should raise as well which is that you're not actually required to disclose criminal histories for jobs in things like the construction sector so they had to uh, in the application letter they had to volunteer the information and come up with a kind of plausible story for why the applicant was doing that. Um, and, they, and, and they tested this as well with the sort of ethnic sounding fake names mm. as well so so they also had a, their sort of made up name with the, the sort of Arabic sounding name was also uh, sent out these application letters that were all basically identical and and also identified themselves as having been convicted of uh, of offenses and of course they were the least likely to mm. to have gotten called back for interviews. But this is uh, so we've had lots of studies in the past where they sort of tested you know compared 
uh, identical applications where one is sent by Mohammed and the other one is sent by Hans. They, they, they find that um, the, the candidate with the doctor name um, has a much better chance of being called for interview. This kind of goes a step further then. It's, they've got more variables in the, in the study and they've uh, actually found out that systematically through the whole system you've got uh, more than three times better chance if you have a Dutch name. So they had done this uh, this experiment in The Hague with, I, I believe, almost 2,000, something like that, anonymous applications mm-hmm. for, this was for jobs with the Gemeente, right? Yeah. Um, and they, they found a number of, of positive things, um, including that there was more minority candidates who applied, right, in the first place? Was that, am I understanding this correctly? Yes, actually, I mean, more, I mean, first of all, more people with, um, um, uh, they, they, they checked for people who had Moroccan, Turkish, Antillian, or Surinamese backgrounds, and they found that uh, they were almost twice as likely to actually uh, be invited for an interview, uh, it went up to about 9%. Of all candidates, um, but also they found that more people actually applied for the jobs in the first place. Because uh, if you're from an ethnic minority, you tend to assume that you're going to get screened out anyway, so you don't apply. And when you see that there's an anonymous uh, application process, and that encourages you to actually do uh, so, as well as having more, um, uh, so, so it works at every level. You have more people applying for the jobs, more people being invited for interviews, and therefore more people getting the jobs. And then, of course, then you have more people in ethnic minorities actually taking part in the selection panel for the next jobs. So it's just kind of, uh, you know, the British uh, argument is that eventually it will sort itself out, but uh, this is a way of accelerating the process effectively and it's, it's been shown to work so what do you think Ritz's real opposition to this is because I, f- I feel like his his sort of party line of 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 saying that it's you know it's just going to sort itself out eventually maybe is okay but this sort of seems like a way to like you said accelerate the sorting out and it I'm struggling to sort of come up with a counter argument for why you wouldn't want to do stuff like this. I suppose you would. I mean, if I, if I try and um, uh, put myself in Mike Rutter's head, uh, it's. Uh, no, no, I suppose one part of it is I suppose that Fefe Day is a free market, laissez-faire kind of um, uh, party that thinks that the market ultimately will uh, sort things out for itself. Uh, so you should just let it uh, do its work, and that you know ultimately that um, uh, you know the um, advantages of competition will be overwhelming. I suppose as well, also if you're more cynical, you would say that Ruta has tended to have, uh, has got quite a track record of um, trying to um, uh, target the voters who've drifted away to hate builders and the PPV. And he does it quite often by sort of presenting a pragmatic argument that actually when you break it down, isn't quite as logical and pragmatic as what it maybe um, pretends that it is. Because ultimately, you know, he's trying to uh, to limit the damage or the drift away of, of, of voters. He, he, the voters he's targeting tend to be the ones who, you often when, um, uh, when they're interviewing the media, say, you know, I'm, uh, I don't agree with the voters' language on Moroccans, but I think, you know, he's got a point about the underlying tension in society, and which I think is trying to sort of sanitise the language, but still sort of hold on to the point about, you know, to, um, to, 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 to trying to sort of reach out to uh, people who, are, who don't like the idea of um, um, making uh, conditions more uh, favourable and more, more pleasant for minorities in society. But I think that's kind of two, two, two strands to it. I, I'm not, I guess, particularly sympathetic to a sort of libertarian argument that like somehow the market is just going to like sort itself out necessarily. I, I suppose someone else may be better able to articulate that, that argument in such a way that it could be more convincing. Um, but yeah, it just seems to me that this is just kind of a blatant political play for these voters who have sort of drifted off to the pay bay And I, I guess I don't continue to not understand how someone, even if you're sort of opposed to let's say, um, let's say from, from a sort of typical pay, pay, pay perspective, which is that you think that 
people who are here who are who are of Turkish and Moroccan background um, are not doing a good job integrating into society that we should accept fewer of those people as immigrants and that sort of stuff I I would think that that allowing for those people to have a better chance of sort of working in you know a, a, a office environment that's as Dutch as you could possibly get namely a Khamenta office right that, that that would be beneficial for all of society, right? And that from a sort of slightly perverse PVV thinking argument, that maybe that that would encourage these sort of people to integrate better, right? That they would see who come to work every day with their sort of quote unquote native Dutch colleagues and see like their lives are really great and that that, that this is a better way to live your life. And so they would be making better choices, whether those choices are, are you know, to be, you know, leave the Muslim faith or culturally shift their belief system or those sorts of things. So I would think even if you were coming at this from sort of a pay-ve-ve mindset, that this almost also seems like a positive thing. Most people think of themselves as not being racist, not discriminating and selecting on merit. It's only when you actually go back and you look through um, the applications, you find this is a systematic problem and the way to tackle it surely is at the systematic level. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can now send comments, compliments and abuse by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. My thanks to Molly Quell, I'm Gordon Darroch, and we'll be back hopefully with Paul Peters next week. Mm-hmm.